Hello, and welcome back to the 46 Brooklyn podcast. I'm your host, Ben Link, the president of 46 Brooklyn Research, but I'm also a pharmacist fed up with fake artificially inflated drug prices. The last episode of our podcast ended with me posing several questions, perhaps too many, related to our drug supply chain. As you will recall, over the life of this podcast, we have identified that while we have a lot of different drug reference prices available to us within the United States, they tend to focus on the extreme ends of the supply chain. Namely, we have a great many different type of pricing benchmarks that contextualize the prices manufacturers set for their drugs and the prices pharmacies endure to acquire those drugs. And so, as I ended the last episode, I asked, how much do we really understand about the middle of the drug supply chain, particularly given that we know wholesalers and other entities exist in the middle of the supply chain who themselves need a profit to sustain their business? Well, on today's episode of the 46 Brooklyn podcast, we're picking up where we left off last time and exploring what is, in my understanding, the best example I can find of how drug pricing and the various pricing benchmarks we've spent so much time talking about play out from start to finish. Meaning we can follow the pricing behavior on this drug from the manufacturer all the way to the patient and the health plan thanks to everything we've thus far talked about. But also, we're able to do this in no small part thanks to the transparency offered by the Mark Cuban Cost Plus drug company when they launched their albendazole product back in early 2021. To that end, I should probably identify that I have, through my work at 3Axis Advisors, been a paid consultant and data analyst with the Mark Cuban Cost Plus drug company. But today's episode is based completely on information available in the public domain and in no way related to that prior work. So as a reminder, the goal of the 46 Brooklyn podcast is to introduce the core concepts of the US drug supply chain to hopefully foster a better understanding of the data available at 46brooklyn.com and our drug pricing system as a whole. As with any educational endeavor, I've attempted to present the information in a logical manner to hopefully ease understanding. However, I want to recognize and acknowledge that everyone learns differently. To that end, if you have questions or comments regarding these materials, please reach out to us on our website as your feedback will only make this content better. So with the boilerplate out of the way, let's dive into today's episode with some background information on albendazole and the Mark Cuban Cost Plus drug company. Albendazole is an antiparasitic drug used to treat hookworm infections. Fortunately, for those of us up in the northern states, like my home state of Ohio, we don't often reach for the albendazole tablets, but hookworm infections are more common in some of the southern states in the United States, with albendazole representing an important drug in the treatment paradigm for those infections. That said, historically speaking, albendazole has been quite expensive, regardless of the pricing benchmark you're staring at. Originally approved back in 1996 under the brand name Albenza, 
the average drug cost per prescription was as high as $700 per prescription, with even the Consumer Reports publishing an article about the drug's pricing affordability back in 2017. Which, when you consider that you normally need a total of three cycles of albendazole to treat a hookworm infection, the total cost to cure the infection would approach almost $2,100. Is it therefore any wonder that people thought there might be an affordability problem related to this drug? Of course, all of this can enhance our understanding of how the end result of inaccessible, unaffordable medications potentially impacts us all. What I mean by this is if a person who needs albendazole now cannot afford to complete their cycle of medication, then in the future, if you or I need treatment for hookworms later, we might encounter resistance to that treatment because somebody previously didn't finish the cycle like they should. And so even if we can't afford abundazole at that point, it might not work for us the way we hoped it would. So against that backdrop, along comes Mark Cuban Cost Plus Drug Company, who according to their original design was a generic drug company which would produce albendazole and offer it for a fraction of the cost that the existing market players were offering. They did this via professed transparency. An article published in Forbes from Joshua Cohen in February 2021 stated, and quote, Cuban's company has declared that it will let all stakeholders know what it costs to manufacture, distribute, and market its drugs. According to the website, there will be no hidden costs, no middlemen, no rebates that are only available to health insurers or pharmacy benefit managers. Everyone will get the same low price for drugs that we make. End quote. The article goes on to share that their secret sauce for how they're going to deliver on these values is that the company will either buy directly from third-party suppliers or manufacture its own products and sell at a steep discount with just a 15% markup to the cost to produce. Prior to continuing on with today's episode, it's worth taking a moment to pause and unpack their secret sauce a little bit. While we've talked previously on the podcast during our Drug Pricing 101 series on how drugs get categorized into brand and generic, we quickly need to revisit those concepts to understand what the cost plus drug company is telling us here. When we talked about brand and generic drugs, we identified that those are largely terms of convenience and that there's really no obvious definition that would support a universally accepted way to identify brand and generic. This is because the FDA, which oversees U.S. drug approval, does so via license applications by the drug manufacturers, grants exclusivity designations that are made according to pre-established criteria, and ultimately manufacturers receive patent protections secured through the U.S. Patent Office, and none of these items, either individually or in preset combinations, can be universally translated into a clean definition of brand and generic. 
Again, generally speaking, a brand is a product without market competition, i.e. a one-of-one option that has patents protecting it against copycats and an exclusivity period protecting it from a generic competitor. However, even that designation breaks down relatively quickly as you see companies launch authorized generics for their products. These authorized generics are nothing more than the brand manufacturer taking their drug and making their own generic version. So although there are now two forms of some of the hepatitis C drugs manufactured by Gilead, for example, one marketed under the brand name and another marketed under the generic name, they're all still made by the same manufacturer and there isn't really generic competition. So, which is what I think we're really generally looking for when we say generic, we're looking for that competition. So in examining the cost plus drug company statement on how they're going to produce generic drug savings, we should focus on the end of their statement from the previously mentioned Forbes article, namely the company will either buy directly from third-party suppliers or manufacture its own products. You see, a drug company doesn't have to just manufacture a product to bring it to market. Sure, that's one way to do it, and there are plenty of companies doing it that way, but there are also a lot of companies who, for lack of a better word, are piggybacking off the work of others through a process known as relabeling. Relabeling a product, which differs from repackaging a product, a topic for another day, is in essence, and leaving out a great many details, nothing more than company A paying another company, say B, to stop their production for a moment, switch out the labels on the assembly line, restart production with the end result being the product being made by company B, ending up in a bottle, making it appear to be made from company A. If this concept sounds a little foreign, it shouldn't when you consider name brand versus store brand items in our if this concept sounds a little foreign, it shouldn't when you consider name brand versus store brand items at our oft-used grocery store analogy. When Kroger sells you Kroger's cornflakes in the cereal aisle, it generally does so right next to the box of name brand Kellogg's cornflakes. However, there is a chance, and we can't know if it applies to our specific hypothetical here, that both products were actually made in the same place, just with the end product being put into a different box. All we're saying is the exact same concept of name brand versus store brand grocery items happens with drugs and can be extended into the generic drug marketplace. Those who have followed 46 Brooklyn for longer than our podcast has been around should hopefully recognize this concept as we have an entire drug market share dashboard available online dedicated to this very topic. That dashboard is our attempt to try and follow the trail of FDA license applications to the actual source of the product and uses Medicaid drug utilization data to assess proportional representation of the manufacturer diversity for each generic drug. So, returning back to the albendazole example at the Mark Cuban Cost Plus drug company, 
we can see that it appears to be a true generic drug because it is licensed by the FDA under what is known as an abbreviated new drug application, or ANDA, which is essentially FDA speak for generic drug. You can look up the license number from its labeling, which is publicly listed at ANDA number 211117. That's four ones. However, this license isn't actually tied to the Mark Cuban Cost Plus Drug Company as the primary sponsor. Rather, it's tied to Edinburgh Pharmaceuticals, which happens to have their own version of albendazole under a different NDC than that used by the Mark Cuban Cost Plus Drug Company. In addition to apparently selling to the Mark Cuban Cost Plus Drug Company, the ANDA license can also be tied to the Golden State Medical Supply. That is to say, both Cuban and Golden State share the same ANDA license as Edinburgh. And only Edinburgh seems in a position to actually manufacture the product, from what we can tell after doing some online research of these companies and licenses. Which brings us to the purpose of today's podcast. When Mark Cuban and his drug company CEO, Alex Oshmiansky, launched albendazole, they identified their cost to produce at $13 per pill. Taking a 15% markup meant that their WAC price that they were willing to sell it to the marketplace at was $15 per pill. Which when compared to either Edinburgh or Golden State or any of the other manufacturers of albendazole at the time was several multitudes lower than the going rate. Unfortunately, WAC isn't a public pricing benchmark, as instead only available through a number of drug compendia resources like Elsevier and Walters Cooler. So due to licensing restrictions, I cannot tell you exactly how much lower it was outside of saying it was many multiples lower. So how on earth could this be? How could this version of albendazole be so much cheaper than others? Well, I'd start by pointing out that that's really no less improbable than what we already know exists in other markets, such as our previously explored cereal example. Kroger cornflakes are generally sold cheaper than other name brand options as a means to potentially entice us to purchase the alternative version of the product. The same concept can be reasonably applied to drugs, but we can explore what that concept means a little bit better thanks to the radical transparency offered by the Mark Cuban Cost Plus Drug Company. If WAC represents a manufacturer cost of a drug, and we know a manufacturer, generally speaking, doesn't directly sell to a pharmacy or a patient, but rather to a wholesaler, then what do we know about the wholesaler cost of albendazole? Well, if we look to the NADAC cost, the last reported NADAC price before Mark Cuban Cost Plus Albendazole launched was reported to be $132.09 per pill in December 2020. NADAC, as a reminder, represents the national average invoice acquisition cost of albendazole by retail pharmacies across the country in the U.S. At a price of $130 approximately, we see that pharmacies were being charged a price 10 times higher than its cost to manufacture. So let's take a step back 
and unpacked this albendazole learning a little further. Here comes a charismatic, eccentric billionaire with no prior drug industry experience who likely didn't develop any fancy new technology for how to manufacture albendazole because, again, they appear to be relying upon others to actually make it and decided to deliver this drug at a cost significantly less than what anyone else was doing at the time. Is he really that much more savvy of a business negotiator that he could negotiate better prices than any of the large wholesalers of drugs like Cardinal, McKesson, or anyone else likely could have at the time? Recall that these drug wholesalers are some of the largest companies in the world, with McKesson ranking in the top 10 of the Fortune 500. And so with no intended offense to Mr. Cuban, I cannot believe that he was that much better of a negotiator than these existing players. Rather, it appears he took an old business approach that your margin is my opportunity and worked to cut out everybody else's margin, including the wholesaler who in this instance, for this drug at least, appeared to be making over $100 per pill in margin because again, Taking it on its surface, we have to believe that these wholesalers were able to secure albendazole at a cost at least similar to what Mark Cuban could negotiate. However, rather than selling it at a fixed 15% markup like Cuban did, Natick suggests that they did so at a significantly higher margin for themselves when selling to their pharmacy customers. So when I was earlier identifying that our pricing benchmarks tell us a lot about the prices for drugs, but don't tell us anything about the prices in the middle, albendazole is a perfect example to support that statement. Because for no other drug in this country that I'm aware of can I readily produce this kind of analysis as to what the wholesaler markup would appear to be. And this is concerning when we consider that the majority, i.e. 90% of all drugs dispensed in this country, are generic drugs, potentially subject to the same kind of pricing arbitrage between wholesalers and pharmacies. You and I generally don't buy our drugs from wholesalers, we buy from pharmacies. But if this behavior is rampant within the generic drug space, and to be clear, we cannot know if it is, we may all be paying significantly more than we need to be in order to get our medicines. So let's keep going and see if our knowledge of drug pricing benchmarks can tell us anything more. Well, the next entity after the drugs wholesaler is the pharmacy, looking to sell their drugs to patients. As we've discussed, the pharmacy rarely does so in a way that is on a cash-only basis. Rather, they're making their sale to the patient and the patient's insurer, which is generally represented as the pharmacy benefit manager. If we could compare aggregate pharmacy reimbursements to the NADAC at the time, we get a sense for how much profit a pharmacy was making off the sale of abendazole. Well, according to my data sources, which come from a variety of pharmacies across the country, in December 2020, the average pharmacy was paid $76 per pill for albendazole. 62 of that was collected from the patient's insurance, and $14 per pill was collected from the patient via a co-payment. What does this tell us? Well, simply that the typical pharmacy at the point of sale appears to have provided the service of 
filling albendazole at a loss. If the average NADAC cost per pill for the pharmacy was $130-ish in December 2020, and the pharmacy was being paid 76, that means they did so at a loss. In attempting to explain this, as with most things in pharmacy, it comes down to contracts. One of the things we've acknowledged when discussing pharmacy costs, but haven't explored to a great deal yet, is that pharmacies, generally speaking, secure some off-invoice discounts for their products from their primary wholesaler contract. It is possible that the margin we've previously attributed completely to the wholesaler comes back in some way, shape, or form to the pharmacy via an off-invoice price concession or rebate from their wholesaler. We've been pretty transparent in our work at 46 Brooklyn as it relates to NADAC that despite its immense value, it also has its shortcomings. And it should be improved if it's going to be increasingly relied upon to pay for and analyze the prices of drugs. But given its current shortcomings, this is one possible explanation. Another is that the PBM simply paid the pharmacy below its cost of goods. While a semi-foreign concept to a lot of businesses, it is an increasingly common paradigm within pharmacy. My own work with 3Axis Advisors, for example, identified that from 2016 to 2019 in the Massachusetts Medicaid Managed Care Program, pharmacies that we studied saw a percentage of claims that were below their cost of goods sold grow from 8% of claims to 26%. So from less than 1 in 10 to more than 1 in 4. Ultimately, we don't have sufficient pricing benchmarks to explore the middle further here, but suffice it to say, filling an albendazole script in late 2020, early 2021, carried a degree of risk to a pharmacy. If they didn't get their rebates or price concessions from their wholesalers or were unable to buy sufficiently better than what the market NADAC price suggested they would need to do, they likely lost or squeaked by on dispensing these treatments to patients. Which finally brings us to the last group in our supply chain to explore with albendazole, the health plans. How much did people's insurance get charged to deliver albendazole as a benefit of their drug coverage? Well, we can explore this within the public pricing data of the largest health programs in this country, namely Medicare and Medicaid. According to Medicare's Part D dashboard available on the CMS website, which summarizes data for all of 2020 and not just December, the average cost per prescription in uh, Medicare for albendazole was approximately 130 the average cost per prescription in Medicare for albendazole was approximately $130 per pill, or $1,666 per prescription, even higher than our earlier estimate of $700. Relative to what the average pharmacy was being paid, the PBM appears to have made a margin of over $50 per prescription, putting it in line with the earlier identified wholesaler margin. 
especially if we assume that the wholesaler provided an off-invoice discount sufficient to make the pharmacy whole, i.e. $60 of their supposed wholesaler margin went back to the pharmacy that the payment rate that the pharmacy got would match the $130 NADAC price. Medicare from the outside looking at this situation might identify that its cost of goods for albendazole was reasonable, given again that the stated NADAC for the drug at the end of 2020 was in line with $130 per pill. But the reality suggests that they were significantly overcharged, even before considering retrospective pharmacy price concessions Medicare likely got on these claims through DIR fees. To confirm this finding, let's take a look at the fourth quarter in 2024 Medicaid managed care claims. In that data set, we see that the average cost per pill across the Medicaid program was approximately $100 per pill. Again, relative to what the average pharmacy was likely getting reimbursed, the PBMs in these large federal health programs were likely making a hefty margin off the cost of the drug to the tune of $30 to $50 per pill. And that's just because we're comparing what the pharmacy received in our data to what the payer data suggests they were charged. So let's review what the learnings of our study of albendazole offers us. On the one hand, it appears possible to deliver albendazole at a very affordable price. If Mark Cuban can do it, you or I could likely do it too, despite whatever misgivings we have about our own expertise. However, just making the price available doesn't necessarily change anything. You need look no further than the utilization of Mark Cuban's NDC. A year after its launch in 2021, we still don't see much, if any, utilization of Mark Cuban's albendazole product within Medicaid or other data sources. While the launch of this product seemed to help push the NADAC of albendazole down to a low of $13.94 per pill in October 2021, exceeding even Mark Cuban's own offered price concession, it has climbed back to $26.85 in January 2022, despite no change in Mark Cuban's price offering. So why didn't the supply chain adapt? Why didn't all the wholesalers and pharmacies flock to Cuban's new low price option? Why didn't PBMs and insurers steer patients to that specific product or forbid coverage of the more expensive versions of this product through, say, an NDC-based exclusion? Well, we need to look no further than the incentive structure of our current system to understand why this didn't happen. If you're the pharmacy losing money on albendazole, historically, you look to the Mark Cuban product as a life preserver, right? If I'm the pharmacy here, here is a way to deliver the required product to the patient at a huge margin for the pharmacy. Again, compare the historic reimbursement in December to the Mark Cuban offered price. But if the insurer won't cover the product, who can I as the pharmacy reasonably sell it to as most of my customers have insurance and want to use that benefit to purchase their medicines? 
And the insurers and wholesalers don't seem to have the incentive to want to offer or promote the utilization of albendazole from the Mark Cuban Cost Plus drug company. Because it messes with Reed's erodes, their bottom line. Inevitably, this leads us to the growth of online cash-only pharmacies, those who completely detach from the insurer-driven marketplace. We've talked about Blueberry Pharmacy before on the 46 Brooklyn site. Just a few miles from Columbus, we've also got Freedom Pharmacy. But now even the Cost Plus Drug Company has an online, cash-only, no-insurance-taken pharmacy with 100-plus different drug offerings, with more being added almost on a month-by-month basis. However, this time around, the Cuban company isn't launching or filling those products under the generic drug company arm of their business. There have been no newly assigned NDCs, relabeled or otherwise, to the Mark Cuban Cost Plus drug company within the FDA NDC lookup tool, despite having so many options now available through its online pharmacy. So what gives? Well, even Medicaid falls victim to their own program design. The Mark Cuban Cost Plus Drug Company doesn't participate in the Medicaid Drug Rebate Program, MDRP. So it doesn't meet the definition of covered outpatient drug and why we likely don't see utilization in Medicaid even in 2021 for their product, even though it offers savings relative to state NADAC models of reimbursement. To cover it would violate federal covered outpatient drug rules for coverage in Medicaid, despite, again, the fact that their current cost, NADAC or otherwise, via MCOs, suggests that state Medicaid programs would save money if they could get access to Cuban's albendazole product. So I want to end this episode by thanking albendazole for teaching us about the brokenness of drug pricing in this country. If this episode has been a little hard to follow, I promise that you can go online and see a visualization dedicated to the numbers I threw around talking about albendazole. Note that it is in no small part thanks to albendazole transparency that we are able to unpack a great deal of the mess we are still recognizing we have a long way to go in fully understanding the machinations of the machine that is U.S. healthcare. To that end, our next episode will explore how prescription drug benefits are financed in this country. As always, I want to thank you for listening to this episode, and I hope you'll tune in to the next. The 46 Brooklyn Podcast would like to thank McGowan Braybender for the use of their facilities in recording our podcast. We'd also like to thank Ben at Journeyman Productions for assistance with our music and sound. As a reminder to our listeners, if you're curious about any of the materials discussed on today's episode, additional information can always be found on 46brooklyn.com.